Greetings and welcome back to ZatCast, the official podcast of local government nerdery. I'm Chad, that's Pat. And today we are going to talk a little bit about sales tax, where it's headed uh, across the state of Texas. Um, spoiler alert, not so good. Um, Patrick has a, a podcast this morning that piqued his interest. And so we're going to talk about that. I, I'm curious to see if it's going to sort of tailspin into a conversation like last week. But uh, well, either way, we're going it's straight be fun. to we're going straight to business today, though. I mean, we're we're staying we're, away yeah, from all the sports conversations. You know, all of Chad's teams are out, so we're just going to go straight to business today. All of everyone's teams are out. Yeah, it's true. My Texans lost last week. Yeah, I was going to say you want to go down that yeah. road. We can, but uh, I anyway. promised myself we were going to we're going to make this very informative, very just, short. Just jump right into it. Jump right concise. in. Concise. Yes. Yes. So it's, well, it's, an important, it's an important conversation, right? So we need to be concise. It is, which it's also very good that we're sitting here talking about how concise we're going to be. Yeah. Concisely. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's just jump in real quick. Uh, first topic here, sales tax, uh, local sales tax across the state of Texas. Like what, what are the trends? What are we seeing? Um, we had a client reach out asking for a little bit of input on, um, on their January sales tax numbers, right? Because we've been importing this week, getting all that information up there. And so we start kind of taking a look and noticing a couple things uh, that are really highlighting some stuff that we've been talking about for almost a, a year now. But I think it's time to go ahead and like talk about some actual numbers. Um, so before we begin, Pat, I think it's important that I kind of explain um, how our momentum analysis works. I think that's fair. Yeah, let's get nerdy. Okay. I have not rehearsed this, so you'll have to bear with me. But essentially, one of the, one of the easiest things that you can look at from a moment, momentum standpoint is your short-term average versus your long-term average, right? So maybe you look at your 12-month moving average compared to your 36-month moving average. And in ideal times, those things are spreading farther apart. Your 12-month average is getting higher uh, than your, and farther away from your, your 36-month average. When those things cross over, and that 12-month average dips below the 36-month average, that's when you're in a really bad spot. Um, but the hardest part about looking at that particular chart is seeing what the inflection point is at the top end, right? So like my, my short-term average is still above my long-term average, but I really want to know when it starts to get closer, right? Like when that inflection point is hit and I'm, I'm starting to actually slow down. And so that's where this uh, momentum analysis that we have in ZachTex comes in. It is something that you can do uh, on your own. It's really just sort of a, a it's very similar to the MACD uh, stock analysis, which I hope that's how it's said. I've never heard anyone say it. I've just read about it. But essentially what this is doing is comparing the difference between your short-term average and your long-term average and, and trending or trendlining those two values, right? So... Uh, we look at it, at the difference between those two, the 12-month average and the 36-month average, and we create a shorter six-month moving average of that value, right? Then you can sort of look at that inflection point. Essentially, when, that, when those lines cross, that's your inflection point for the 12 versus 36-month graph. Does that make any sense, Patrick? No, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, I assume that we're going to have a blog post about this, so maybe I'll be able to explain it a little bit better in writing than I can extemporaneously um, via just talking about it. So, um, but either way, essentially, it, it's a type of analysis that doesn't look at the averages per se. It looks at the inflection points of those averages and how they're comparing with each other. So we pulled uh, sales tax collections across the whole state of Texas over the past three or four years. 
and ran this, this momentum analysis for every city. And um, I sent Patrick, I sent you a couple of uh, pictures uh, a little bit earlier today. Uh, and then when we jumped on this Zoom call, we kind of looked through them again. It's, it's kind of ugly. It's really ugly. It's, it's so ugly that we have to blog post about it. We have to send an email out to the clients. Uh, and, and I mean, granted, like we don't, we don't do that very often where we, we have to like raise the flag and tell people like, Hey, you got to start paying attention to this. I mean, I, I think the last time we probably did that was like COVID where we told people not to reduce their budgets by 50% because it wouldn't be that bad. Um, but I think we're in a situation here where um, as we get into mid-year adjustment cycle, right. And, and what these things are looking like. So just give people a visual of what they're going to see when the blog post eventually comes out. Um, yeah. The, so this blog... is basically a map of Texas and it has a lot of red dots on it. Correct. It has a lot of red dots today because the momentum is turning negative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it If you go back and look at two years ago, that momentum was very positive, right? As we were looking at, uh, you know, it was a lot more green on that map in 2022 than there is in 2024. And so, um, and and granted, you know, we were we were coming out of some pretty crazy inflationary times, but I think what we're what we're looking at now is 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 we're starting no, to see what's wild. We were in the inflationary times. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, I'm sorry. Good correction there for sure. Um, the, I think what what we're what we're going to see is cities are going into mid year adjustments. Right, we're we're coming into March. We're coming into April. This is the time of year where people are starting to put together their projections for the fiscal year, their projections for the end of the fiscal year. Um, and everybody already knows that sales tax has been a bit soft. We've actually been talking about sales tax being soft now for, I, I mean, not to put myself on the record, but probably over a year that we've started to see softness in especially the retail sector. Um, you know, there was, there was some, some good, you know, uh, credit card swipe data and some things that came out uh, and some good articles that were coming out that were kind of forecasting, you know, consumer spending was dropping and consumer savings was dropping. So therefore spending would drop. And so we, we knew that we were going to face this uh, moving into the cycle. Um, but there were quite a few cities uh, and, and rightfully so. I think what we saw then there were quite a few cities that were still projecting pretty significant sales tax increases in the fiscal year that we're currently in. So FY24. Um, and I I think we're we're now faced with uh, the reality that at the mid-year, uh, some cities have started to see drops and we saw drops through the holiday seasons, right? So we're seeing January sales tax numbers come out, uh, which obviously is November sales. We're, we're going to see February uh, here in, in two, three weeks. And we're going to continue to see these numbers that are just flat or negative uh, and the momentum analysis is showing us that we're probably going to continue to see those numbers as things soften and continue to soften. So, um, yeah. So it's important to understand like right now, Patrick, I'm showing you, this is a map of January allocations and I've basically just got red dots. If the year over year change for January was down and a green dot, if it was up, there's a lot of green on this map. Yep. Right. There's a lot of cities who are still experiencing year-over-year -year growth um, from a, on a month-to-month -month basis. The momentum analysis, on the other hand, is showing us what where, what is the actual direction that we're headed, though. Right? We're, so we're moving towards the inflection. Is, yes, yeah. that growth we're moving is towards slowing. the crossing into lines. Yeah, a lot like the, a lot of cities are already below that line, where that growth is definitely slowing, if not already negative. Yes. So even and, if you are still experiencing nominal growth that growth is probably slowing to a point where you need to start really paying attention to it. And and I don't I don't remember in graduate school which professor it was of ours that really focused on the 12 over 36 line. 
um, I, I, for some reason, like always in my mind, I think like, um, um, Ghostbusters, when you look at those lines, because it's like, you don't want to cross the streams. Like it's really bad if you cross the streams and when they cross the streams, you got to really pay attention. We're, we're at that point. Like the streams are crossing. <laughs> yeah. And, That's also and like even, a cross buns Jones, but crazy. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, so just leave it. that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just, it's look, we're not going to, we're not going to dig into this. We're going to put more detail out there. We're going to show you, um, we're going to provide you in the blog post, a video that shows you the movement and the momentum analysis across the state. It's a really cool picture. Chad did some good work on this. Um, and, um, you know, really, really kind of put some time into this to show people what that looks like. We're not telling you the world's ending. We're not telling you the sky's falling. What we're telling you is when you get into mid-year adjustments, uh, now's the time to start thinking about that so that you're not trying to triage a major issue as you get into a new budget cycle. Um, let's try to make the adjustments in April and not really have any major impact on city services and things like that instead of waiting until budget adoption and figuring out that we have to make up for a previous year's issue plus the future year issue. Um, we're, we're giving you kind of a, a heads up that it just doesn't look great. Maybe things change economically. Maybe interest rates falling will have an impact on this before we get to October. It's entirely possible. I'm not a super negative Nancy about the economy in Texas. I actually think Texas is pretty stable. Chad and I believe that we're not, I mean, for the most part, I think your current projection is like, you you believe that there's a 28% possibility. We do this every week, but you believe there's like a 28% possibility that we go into a recession, right? Over the next, over uh, the next 12 months. Over the next 12 months. Uh, so, and we're not, we're not like thinking that there's just going to be this world ending event, but what we're saying is, is that revenues are slowing down and you need to be prepared for that, especially if you were predicting that they weren't going to slow down at the speed they are. So. Okay. Yep. Onward. We told you this was going to be like really quick and uh, we're going to, we're going to move on to the second one. So I listen and I actually listen to this with my kids on most occasions. Um, my, my kids are almost 12, almost nine. Um, and uh, usually on the way to school, uh, my eldest specifically really likes to listen to the the Wall Street Journal, the Journal podcast uh, that comes on every day. Uh, usually gets released at like three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and then that next morning we listen to it. But there was a podcast. The title of that podcast, Chad, I sent it to you, right? Is um, yeah, you listened to it, of course. Sorry, uh, the computer glitch that caused nearly one thousand convictions. Um, this is a podcast specifically about the postal service in. Uh, in Great Britain, uh, in England. And the postal service in England runs quite a bit different than it does in the United States. They're almost like little mini franchises of the postal service. So people have, um, little, uh, post offices or they call them post. Uh, and you know, they could have cafes or shops or other things that are in there, uh, that also generate business, but they have like the franchise to be the post office for that small community or that area. Um, and you it's know, kind of interesting they, idea. It, it's actually a fascinating idea yeah. because our postal service in the United States is incredibly inefficient. Um, and you know, this seems to be not only that, it's just, it's like a, it's like a city making type of deal. Like you're creating, um, you're using a government service to create it. Uh, it'd be cool. Like if the UPS store, which does a lot of things in the private side, I use the UPS store all the time. Probably a lot of people do too. Cause that's where you return most of your Amazon stuff. But like the UPS store would be cool if they had a coffee shop. Like that would make sense. I feel like I'm at the UPS store three times a week. I don't know about you. It'd but be tough because they tend to go for very small spaces. They do. Yeah. They'd have to open up some retail space there. 
you know, at the very expensive $36 a foot that rents go for these days, probably. But so anyways, this, this episode of the podcast, and we'll, we'll link to the journal podcast on uh, the show notes, but uh, this episode specifically talks about these individuals and back in the early, late nineties, early two thousands, uh, the postal service there in England changed over to a very complex uh, software system that all these small post offices had to transition to, to manage all of their sales and uh, basically their reporting requirements. Uh, so their register systems, all that type of stuff was, was used. It was a, uh, it was a, it was an out of, it was a big contract. It was like a billion and a half dollar contract, I believe, um, you know, sizable, very complex system. And it was rolled out to all the postal offices that are out there. Unfortunately, there were quite a few bugs in the system and there were just a, multitude of things that went wrong in the process, in the checks and balance process. Uh, and Chad, before we started this, you were curious, like which direction I was going to take this. And I'm kind of going to give you a little bit of uh, an idea here. But um, what occurred is, is they rolled the system out and these small little, you know, basically we call them postmasters, but these small little postmasters started losing money as in, as in money was missing. Right. So they would do their weekly reconciliations and then little by little, they'd be missing a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. And it just started adding up. Well, instead of the postal service going in and trying to find something that was wrong, um, they prosecuted and convicted over a thousand of these individuals. And the reason this is coming up now, because, you know, obviously this lasted from 99 to 2015, but the reason it's coming up eight or nine years later is because there is a a new TV show in England that has just taken off. Um, and it's uh, it basically is talking about this fiasco that happened at the the Postal Service. And it's uh, Mr. Bates versus, uh, I think it's Mr. Bates versus the Postal Service or something like that, um, which I find that funny because I was a big Downton Abbey fan. And what the, Mr. Bates was on uh, Downton Abbey as well. Seems like a very common English name. Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. Hey, I was, I was close. So um, it's become the most popular television show in England, but it's created this, this uproar because people did not realize that a thousand people or so had been convicted of these crimes. Um, and the state has done nothing to rectify it and later found, obviously, that you know there was an issue with the software. It was not found by the Postal Service themselves or the Inspector General of the Postal Service. It was found by two people, uh, one who had pled guilty to a lower crime in order to kind of cleanse themselves uh, and in a wonderful life moment, owed the Postal Service $36,000 and couldn't come up with all of the the money. It was 36,000 pounds. Yeah, sorry, 36,000 pounds, which- uh, I think they said it was over $70,000 at the time. Yeah, so over over $70,000 at the time and couldn't come up with all of that money. And so if they couldn't come up with that money, they were going to have to go to prison. The small town where she ran that post office actually started dropping off money to the Postal Service and was able to collect enough money to so that she wouldn't have to go to jail. So, you know, it's like a wonderful life, you know, when he loses all the money because he accidentally gives the cash. And if you watch that movie, it's a good movie. So anyways- Getting to the end of, of my comment here, this goes on for 16 years where they just continually go after people for stealing. Uh, and then eventually this one lady who who was convicted and Mr. Bates, who um, I don't believe was convicted, but he basically fought back, right? So yeah, he was not convicted. Yeah. 
but he he figured out that this was happening to hundreds and hundreds of people. And so he started to fight back and he started to look into the software program. And that's when they figured out, right, that there was an error in the software program. Um, so that's the background behind it. Now, you want me to start with my thoughts or you want to go first? I would like you to start with your thoughts. Okay. So my thoughts are very specific to when you build a complex system that does not allow a normal caring person to look out for the best interest of a human, you are asking for trouble. So what I mean by that, and in any city service, I, I say this, but when you build a system where there is not a person who can oversee the operations of that system in a knowledgeable way, this was such a complex software program that there was not a single individual who had an understanding of how it operated or how it worked, right? And because of that, there was no check or balance. There was nobody logically in this large governmental organization, managers, executives, investigators at the OAG, uh, Internal Office of Investigation, basically. Nobody stopped to think, wow, maybe this nice little lady from this small town who's run this post for a long time didn't steal. Maybe we should look at the software itself and see if there's something going on. The well, reason also, was, yeah, also, even if maybe she was, she was continuing to steal after we identified that she was stealing, right. that seems unlikely. Exactly. And, but the software itself was so complex, was so difficult for a single person to analyze and understand what was happening or when you pushed button A, what happened with B and C, you know, for city managers out there. When you make a journal entry and encode, not everybody understands how that journal entry impacts the other things that happen, the other funds or the payables or anything like that. But there are people who do understand that, right? You at least can pick up the phone and call somebody. This was a situation where it was so complex, there was nobody who understood it. Yeah. And the vendor just kept telling them, the vendor got, got paid, by the way, a billion and a half dollars to roll this out. The vendor just kept telling them, no, it's on you, and it's not happening to other people. It was hidden in the customer support. The customer support was not coming through the postal service itself. It was coming through the vendor, and the vendor just kept telling all these people, no, you're a criminal, and nobody else is really a criminal. It's just you all by yourself. And then they find out years later, right, bam, there's a thousand people they've convicted for this same crime that you know, lost livelihoods just because of one complex system. Yeah. That's my thought. Okay. So I would say there's a couple things going on here. Um, one of them has to do with, with incentive alignment, right? The, 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 I guess you could say like the watchdogs, maybe it's just customer service, whatever. Um, that was the vendor who has an incentive to hide the fact that their software is screwing up, uh, right? Because the entire post office is running on it now. Like a door plug on a Boeing 737? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's no one with any level of accountability in the postal service who's tasked with making sure that 
what the vendor is saying is actually accurate. I think there's another element which in some ways was unique to England or Great Britain in this particular scenario, but it is, I think, human nature uh, as well, which is why it's codified in our legal system. The concept of innocent until proven guilty is extremely important. Um, And in the podcast, they mentioned that around the same time, a new law had passed, which said that basically if evidence comes from a computer, it's deemed to be correct and true. Like, you don't have to... Do you remember that part of the, of the, yes, the episode? Yes, yeah, I do. Like, the, the burden of proof then switches from the accuser to the accused. Which right? is super, so, un-Ameri- super un-American. Yes. Right, but yeah. But I think, I think that one little element is kind of indicative of why this whole problem was never identified and rectified until so much later. Is that there was already the presumption of guilt um, rather than of, of innocence. And uh, there's probably a lesson in there for how, um, how we handle you know, conflict and issues with personnel and things like that. Wow. I'm just, just going to say your breakdown of that, so good. Well, thank you. I mean, just, just thinking about it from that perspective, right? Like looking through it, the, the legal system differences, I, that, I find that fascinating. Right. Like are are Americans just because of the way our legal system is set up, are we just naturally more skeptical? Um, no, we are not. I don't think anyone is naturally more skeptical. Okay. One of the things that they uh they talked about was that it's because so many of these people had pled to lower lower crimes, once this information became known to the public, there was still a lot of skepticism because, well, these people all pled guilty. Right? Like they must have done something. Yeah. Um, and that happens with like 90% of all criminal cases in this country, too. Right? You have yeah. uh, charges come at a certain level and then we plead them down. Uh, and then, you know, do you take a conviction or you take, you know, whatever you're going to do? Maybe it's probation, whatever. But you're, you're admitting to the fault on some lower thing because, the, like, we, we don't have enough room in our court system to actually send all of these cases to jury trials, right. right? So you're faced with like 15 years in jail, or I'll go ahead and plead guilty this, to this lesser charge, and maybe I take like six months and two years of probation, right? Which the female in the story in the podcast, that's what happened. That's what happened. Right? That's, yeah. So uh, season four, I believe, of Serial, the Serial podcast. Okay. So first season, Adnan Syed... Uh, Sarah Koenig yeah. goes through that entire series and like investigates the whole crime, right? Like that, there's a lot of developments that have happened in that case since. Um, I think he's now out. I'm not sure if he's going to be re-prosecuted. They had a couple more seasons that I wasn't quite as interested in, but the last one that they did, they basically did a like a deep uh, embedding into the Cleveland court system, and this this whole thing kind of came up that. So many of these cases don't actually get tried. They just get pled down. Um, in many cases, they get overcharged and then, yeah. and then pled down. But the, like, the number of people who get charged with crimes, if they all went to a jury trial, it would clog up the system entirely. So like, we accept that this is how things are done. But it's not necessarily a f- like a f- an even playing ground or a playing field because... You know, if I'm just a person who's been accused of stealing from the post office, what resources do I have? Like, she had already tried to sell her whole house just to pay off this thing. 
this 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 uh this vine versus the resources of the state at, yeah. at your disposal, right? So it is not a level playing field, which is one of the most important reasons why we where we have this presumption of of innocence. So you need do you need a devil's advocate in your organization to ask these hard questions? Like should somebody be Well, I mean to a certain oh, degree that's like what unions Budson, are for, right? right? That's what like your your police oh, and fire Chad taking a pro like, uh, taking a pro union stance, everybody, everybody, stop! A, I, I am one hundred percent not taking a pro union stance when it comes to public employees. You've always been a big fan of Chapter One Forty Three in Texas, Chad. I, I see a major difference. Not to, not that this is relevant, but there's a major difference in in unionization of public employees versus private employees, mm-hmm. particularly if it gives them the ability to not do their job. <laughs> but what, that's that's sort of a topic for a different that's question. for another that's, podcast but <laughs> i mean it's certainly true that that acts as teachers as well you know that acts as a as a an uh, an advocate for the employee it can obviously go too far right where we can't fire bad teachers we can't fire bad cops um because of all of these rules and all this this bureaucracy but um but certainly in the case in this particular case because all these people had pled down once this information became public there was still a lot of skepticism about uh, why would I believe these people? They obviously they did something because they pled to all these crimes. So no, to get back to your original question, I and, don't and Mr. think that Mr. Bates fought it right, so people right. kind of trusted him a little bit more. And the the female in this in this example, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. I don't remember Joe. her last name, but her name was Joe. Yeah, she was from a small town, and even though she pled to the lower charge, she just had like this huge community support that believed her because she ran this like little cafe, and it was like the community coffee spot, right? So, or cold cuts and coffees, or something like that. So, sorry. But to get back to the question that you asked, I, I don't think that it is inherent, even even with our legal framework. I don't think it is a, just like a natural tendency uh, of human nature to abide by the innocent until proven guilty sort of maxim. Well, I would encourage people to go look at stats from the Innocence Project, and maybe that will make you naturally skeptical. Yeah. Right? It's, um, this is also not quite relevant, but I do think that it's... Actually, it's kind of relevant, because when you talk about like policing and, and criminal investigations, there's an overlap here but with local governments. But I think that it's really important... And I also think that too many times the lines between the, like the DA and the police get blurred to where they're almost on the same side. Whereas like, I think the police are doing the job that they are doing fine. I think it's more on the DA side where they need to be more skeptical of the cases that are being brought to them as well. Not that should they, they be should be elected. Should they be elected positions like they are? Because that seems to always play a role. Yeah. When, because... when you listen to serial, mm-hmm. all that type of stuff, it's always like, the DA takes a hardline position on a case because, because the political the key, ramifications. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so really the DA becomes like almost, almost starts prosecuting uh, cases based on like a populist movement mm-hmm. rather than, you know, what they the see, you know, the granted case. they're going to say they have like, you know, the canons of law and things like that, that they have to follow and that they have ethics too. Yeah, and, and, and I no get doctor that. has ever done anything unethical either, even though they have the Hippocratic oath. Yeah, correct. And and I mean, you know, city managers, you know, should should be unswayed by politics, right? That's why we have contracts with severances. Uh, and uh, you know, there was a post on LinkedIn the other day talking about severance links. And and yeah, I think it's extremely important for city managers not to take jobs that have short severance links because it puts you in a position to make decisions that 
aren't necessarily best for the organization, but are what, you know, the political winds say you should do right mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but I mean, the same so, is true in the corporate world where quarterly earnings drive, you know, management decisions versus long-term fiscal sustainability. We, yeah. we have the same incentive mismatches in local governments too, um, particularly when we don't fully account for things uh, in our books. But I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges that any organization faces is making sure that the, all of the incentives are as aligned as possible. And whenever you have mismatched incentives or alignment, uh, misalignment of incentives, like it's inevitably going to cause some problems. Yeah, and I think that gets back to my takeaway, right? Like somebody really honestly thought from an incentive standpoint that they were just going to streamline this to a streamline this process, these post offices to to make it better to manage, right? To make it more efficient. Like I think there was a good reason behind it. But when you build a a system that is so complex, it's very difficult to even if you had an ombudsman, even if you had a, you know, somebody that was there looking as a devil's advocate on this issue, it would be very difficult for them to do because they would never be able to understand the, the kind of the, the detailed oriented internals of how the software was operating. So do you want me to go in real quick to my, one of my biggest sort of pie in the sky utopian opinions? Yeah, let's go. Okay. So this particular software was a top-down mandate, right? On all of these sort of franchised post offices. Yes. Okay. There's a lot of risk in making such a decision because if something goes wrong, everyone is affected, Yeah. which is obviously what happened in this case. Yeah. However, there is a challenge with letting every single franchisee have their own, you know, point of sale system or accounting system, right? Like you want to have some kind of interoperability. In my opinion, the the future of software like this is just standards. Like like um protocols for communication between softwares, right? So okay. um you can use whatever software you want, but it, it talks to these communication protocols. Yes. It will pass data in this way and receive data in that way. And I, and I don't care what you do, how you handle it, but as long as you can adopt this protocol, then we can all work together and talk to each other. The 311 system, right? Like the service request system. We have uh-huh. hundreds of apps now to handle service requests. And you know, ideally, those things should feed into our work order systems or you know, whatever, whatever else they need to feed into. Now we also have these apps who can put data into them. This really took off because a handful of cities came up with this open 311 specification. And it essentially says, as long as you have a server somewhere that can receive a 311 request in this format, mm-hmm. um, and also that can you know, show a list of them in this format or whatever, you know, whatever, all the different specifications of it, then it doesn't matter what software you use because they can all talk to each other in the same way. And you could build an app for San Francisco that would work in Chicago or New York or, you know, Dimebox because everyone's using yeah. this just basic specification. It's the entire reason that the internet works, that email works, Correct, right? Yeah. You can use Gmail or Outlook, although don't use Outlook because it's terrible, but you can, you can use all <laughs> these different clients and it doesn't matter what you're using or what I'm using. We could talk to each other because email is just a protocol. 
It's the whole reason why Apple's going away from their messenger system officially. I haven't you seen that. Yeah. They're moving to the different protocol because it doesn't, it's not interoperable. Well, that was part of the charm of it is the lock-in, but yeah, <laughs> whatever. True. It was part of the charm is making fun of people who had green messages yes. on the screen. Yeah. Man, it took us like six years to shame Doug into getting an iPhone so he wouldn't have his green bubble. Welcome to the dark side, Doug. So, so but anyway, but yeah, that's no, my I, thought no, is I, that I, you can I think, avoid I think a lot of these brilliant. problems. And we could do, we could go into this forever, but I will make this comment. One area that that is a glaring issue in city government is in their ERP financial management systems. None of those vendors, whether you, it doesn't matter who the vendor is, right? None of those vendors allow you the ability to be interoperable with other software vendors so that that data can be used for decision-making purposes. Mm -hmm. Like you are going to pay some type of special interface cost or whatever else it may be. So that's, so you have these open data companies, right? That are, you know, providing these uh, financial dashboards and things like that for cities on websites. There's a couple of them out there. Um, you know, OpenGov and ClearGov are the two that like come to mind, and they just basically have to yeah, hack. Socrata. Socrata, yeah, they basically it, well, but Socrata is owned, is owned by, by Tyler now. ER, by yeah. Tyler now, yeah. So, uh, and and look, I, I, mean, I don't know if that's Tyler, helped them improve operability between Tyler products. I assume it has, but I don't know for sure. I, I would imagine, especially with like like I've heard from some city managers that you know some of the products in Tyler's new suites are a little bit more interoperable and better, specifically Munis, um, but. The, the reality of it is, though, is that like, we should have an expectation, like that 311 protocol that was written by all those cities that came together to have that conversation. Why don't we have that with every software, software vendor? Mm -hmm. Like, Why do you why have to know? use one massive ERP system that does planning and HR and water billing? Like, it's insane how, first of all, how expensive these products are, but the risk that you take if it doesn't work out, you're overhauling your entire operations. And just because yeah. this is a really good, you know, financial software doesn't mean that it's really good at permitting. And especially well, for smaller and the, and cities, you you, you don't you don't have the way to talk to each other. Like you do need a way for your permitting information to talk to finance because you're taking payments, and you know, and the, the, it has to hit the GL properly, right? But I I understand it from the big ERP software provider, right? Like I understand if they don't want to have to compete with all these small smaller software operators, which by the way, that's, that's where we were that at one point, I think we're probably still a little bit that, but we've, you know, 230, 40 cities, we're probably not that anymore. But the reality is, is that, um, the software vendor themselves wants to lock people out because they want to be able to sell that. And mm -hmm. so let's talk permitting. For example, I, I know a city that pays $120,000 a year in annual maintenance on their ERP system and their interface cost right, is 20 plus thousand dollars just for the third party permitting process that they use, right? That's wild. That's yeah. crazy. It's, it's more expensive for two different than softwares that. and you're paying an interface fee. And you're paying an interface fee in some cases that's more expensive than the actual software fee for the permitting software, right? Um, I just don't understand as, as cities why we why, haven't Why do we accept that? Why? Yeah. It's insane. Why do we accept that? It is. It's crazy. But you look at all these software vendors that are almost exclusively... Uh, marketing at cities. Mm -hmm. This is their market. Like yeah. we have the leverage, not them. So I, I just really don't understand why we we let that happen. Oh, it could change overnight by just your midsize. I mean, say say that you're you know top twenty five cities in Texas, which all those city managers, by the way, get together, right? 
let's say they all sat down in a room and while having drinks, cause you know, that's what we do. Um, they all decided we're not going to do a software RFP that does not require some type of interoperability standard. Right. Like well, all the problem is that, that we have, I think we have to, we have to probably form some kind of like, uh, Oh God, what's the term? Like some type of like API standard or. Yeah. There's a, there's an official term for it. Um, hold on. I'm talking to those, those city managers right now out loud on a podcast. We will happily sit on that committee. <laughs> we will donate our time to do it. Um, a consortium. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So we can, yeah, put together some kind of consortium to actually like identify what these might look like. And you would definitely need probably some, some technical people. Correct. Um, technical, not just in terms of programming, but in terms of like subject matter experts. What's the IT director conference in Texas? I don't remember. I'm going to have to give old Troy a call and ask him that question. Yep. He'll know. But so you'd have, I think maybe, you'd have to, maybe that's what we should do is we should go sponsor the IT thing so that we can get like two minutes on the stage and we can just make this big pitch <laughs> and just say, hey, everybody in the room. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the reality is if you, if you change that for the top 25 cities in Texas, right? A lot of those cities are our clients. But if you change that and you said that out loud, that's going to be a market mover. That's going to be a huge yeah, market. Even mover. just saying we are starting a consortium to look at uh, developing interoperability standards for, correct, yeah, various software packages. Because we we have this, you know, I I I want to put my uh, full disclosure hat on for a second because there there is a there is a personal Scrooge McDuck reason why I want this to happen. Right, there is so much more we can do from a management perspective, decision making platform perspective, if we had access to some of those ERPs. Yeah. When you say we, right. I mean the city management field. The city management field. Yes. I just want to make sure you're not talking right. just about us. No, no, no. Not yeah. just about yeah. Zach. Just from a city management field. Like that we are so disconnected that it is madness how disconnected we are in city government. And um there could be hundreds and I'll give my grand plan idea of just, you know, but there are hundreds of software but don't give it. You don't want me to give it. Not until we patent it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I mean, the, the reality is, is that no city employee should be disconnected from that information, right? If they're dealing with an issue, they should be able to have all the tidbits of information in front of them. And you can't do that when you have disjointed software programs that don't talk to one another yeah. or have the ability to talk to something centralized. Yeah, um, I think, honestly, I think all you'd really need to do is, or at least you could, you could go a long way and we probably... Yeah. But you don't need SAP and Oracle no, to build that. No, I'm saying like, we're not in that. We're not in that world anymore. You wouldn't even want them to build it. But I think yeah. you could probably go a long way if you just had a specification for journal entries, right? If I can write to the ledger from a different program, and I know that it's going to be logged, but also know that it's going to be provided in the correct format mm -hmm. for my software to read it properly, and kick back errors if like you put a wrong account code or something like that. So to put this into like actual operations terms here, if I could take my P card software and automatically write in my P card journal entries from that P card software, how yeah. much easier would that be for you? Yeah. Or my park reservation software. Yeah. If it could write, if it could be totally separate from my, my accounting, but, but drop because of this specification, yes, yeah. just drop it in each, you know, each transaction just goes right into the GL. Wow. 
then everyone could use the software that worked best for them. And you could switch on a dime if you okay, need to. We, we promised to be short and concise. I feel like that was a really cool topic that we just ended on. The first topic is by far more important. I'm going to say that out loud. Uh, that last one, we probably need to like, uh, we need to reach out to some software vendors and see if they'll come on and have a conversation. I think that would be really cool. Okay. So I'm, I may, I may do that. You just want to put them on the hot seat or what? <laughs> no, I, I want to tell them, I want to tell them exactly what we want to talk about, but I think we could, we could dedicate a couple podcasts to bringing on some software vendors and having those conversations and reaching out to them and talking about that. If they don't want to come on, they don't want to come on. We're not going to call them out for not coming on. Maybe. I don't know. Would we like, we reached out to so-and-so told them why they didn't want to come on like a bad reporter. I mean, what do you think they're going to say? We reached out to Patrick Golder, city manager, and he had no comment. I always hated that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always hated that. And it, it was like, they reached out to me and they left me a voicemail and I didn't respond to him in 10 minutes. You know, it's like, <laughs> so anyways, that was fun, dude. That was a good, quick, uh, yeah. informative. Uh, you got to get to blogging because we got to put this thing on a blog post and get it out there for people. Yeah, I'll have to do that tomorrow. Yeah. Post it in conjunction with the episode. So, so, all right, brother. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. You too. All right. See y'all later. Adios. Adios.